This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined again by Andrew Beasley. Uh, second week running, mate. How are you feeling? Yeah, good. Uh, good to be back. Lots to discuss, obviously, with uh, the crazy match we had last weekend and the disappointing transfer news we've had midweek. So, uh, yeah, I think plenty for us to get our teeth into this week. Yeah, well, you'll you'll be joining me for the rest of the month. I can give our listeners that much uh, in terms of what lies ahead in the future. But in terms of this week's episode, as you say, we have two, I suppose, overriding talking points to address. One of them is obviously the news around Jude Bellingham, which we will get to, and the other is the chaotic match that happened against Arsenal. Probably one of the best matches of the season, really, in terms of a neutral perspective, entertainment and all that stuff. Um, But I think in terms of the game overall, mate, I don't know about you, but I thought it was very much a game of two halves. Standard cliche, but I think that was how it went. Yeah, I mean, not to sort of lean too heavily on, on cliches, but you, you sometimes hear a game saying it's like, oh, well, that sums up a team season. I mean, that, that game basically summed up Liverpool season, didn't it? Because we saw the Liverpool that have been far too defensively open um, this season. And then we also saw a glimpse of the Liverpool that has scored seven goals a couple of times and nine goals another time. You know, all right, they didn't do that, but they had the chances to score far more than the than the two goals they, they ultimately did. So we sort of saw both sides of Liverpool. And as you say, it was pretty much a game of two halves, a game of sort of 40 minutes and 50 minutes, I suppose, kind of hinging on that granite jacker moment with Trent Alexander-Arnold. I mean, whether that did tip the balance, I I think that might be going a bit far, but it certainly got the crowd going and um, Liverpool scored immediately afterwards and and never really looked back from there and and were probably unlucky not to win, which when they were 2-0 down as early as they were, I mean, you've never thought that. So, um, yeah, just so much to sort of talk about from from that game and, and we even had a you know a linesman elbowing a player. I mean it it literally had everything <laughs> I think. Yeah that was crazy though. Um but if if we touch on the, the early stages of the game obviously Liverpool just struggled to compete. Um I thought Arsenal were very, very good, one of the best teams I've seen in Anfield in terms of the first half and out at least. Um Liverpool, I mean the second goal in particular I think off the top of my head, the Gabriel Jesus header. Really bad goal to concede, just not aggressive enough, not tight enough, given these world-class technicians time and space to make decisions and to make passes. And as a result of that, they play straight through it. And I do think it kind of almost highlighted what you mentioned last week, really, when I said to you, you know, what's your diagnosis in terms of issues for the season? You touched on uh, pressure on the ball, essentially. And I think that was evident in the, in the first half an hour of the game against Arsenal. Yeah, it felt like one of those games where you sort of have to say, at, at, at first hand, it looks like Arsenal played really well. And I, I think they probably did. But at the same time, how much of it was just Liverpool playing badly and, and making it all too easy for them? I mean, with the first goal, there was an unfortunate slip by Robertson sort of in the build-up and stuff like that. But you just sort of feel like you sort of make your own luck in those situations. And, um, you know, Liverpool mm. probably deserve to concede that. And yeah, maybe the second goal was, was even worse. I mean, I was sort of looking at some stuff... Um, this week might actually write about it today, but like Liverpool basically never used to concede headed goals when Alisson and Van Dijk were playing. I think there was something like three or four in open play in four seasons. And, and that was the fourth one, I think this season. And it was just so easy. I mean, you know, the player was able to cross, even though there was two defenders there. I think it was Martinelli, you know, he had Trent and Canate near him. He was still able to deliver a cross. And then um, Jesus is, sort of between Van Dijk and Robertson and neither of them are marking him either. And then obviously Alisson's got no chance with a free header from whatever it was, six yards out and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, credit to Arsenal for how they played in that sort of opening half an hour, 45 minutes. But Liverpool did just make it too easy for them, really, didn't they? Yeah, it, it did sum up many, many of the issues of the season. But you, you touched on the, the Jacques moment there. This is the kind of thing that I would use this podcast to completely debunk, to be honest, because that's the kind of narrative that the media in particular tend to love. Journalists play on it in Sky Sports, the likes of that, love all that stuff. But 
usually I would play that down, but I think in this case, I actually think there's an element of truth behind it because if there's one thing that Liverpool have lacked this season, for me, it is intensity against the ball. Liverpool have been too nice, too easy to play against, too easy to cut open. And a lot of that has stemmed from players almost lacking. It does sound a little bit da, but almost lacking that, that fire to actually want to regain the ball and make it difficult for your opponent type thing. And whatever Xhaka did, I mean, it was only a, a minor thing, but it did seem to ignite the ground. It did seem to ignite Liverpool's defensive game a little bit in terms of just getting that bit tighter, just being that bit more aggressive. And I also think it had a, a massive impact on Trent and his willingness to, or his desire to actually get tight to his man, put a foot in, don't just let him play. You know, this isn't like a game of football in the park. This is like a competitive game where you're supposed to be competitive in your attempts to win the ball. And that moment did seem to impact. It did seem to wake Liverpool up. As cliche as it sounds, it I do think it had that impact on the game. I really do. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy sort of headline or story or narrative to make, particularly because it was um, Granite Xhaka, because obviously in the past he's had his made his mistakes and he's been, you know, sent off for silly challenges and stuff like that. So as soon as he does something of that ilk again, it's an easy line to say, well, you know, Xhaka did this and then and then the game turned. But it did seem it did seem to happen. And I'm sort of with you. I think too much can be made of these things, but it it did seem to instigate a change. I mean, obviously, we'll never know, but. Liverpool basically scored directly from the free kick that came from that moment just before half time. Well, if nothing comes of that and they go in 2 0 down, you know, the crowd might be flat again in the second half. The team might be flat again in the second half. Obviously, as I say, we won't know that. But it did seem to, to fire them up. And obviously, they got the goal and then they sort of kicked on and utterly dominated the second half in the way that um, we haven't seen. And I think it, it sort of raises an interesting point as well about Liverpool this season. We know they've struggled on the road and that, that playing in sort of hostile away grounds never really um, seemed to bother them when they were at their best. But obviously, being at their best will, will have helped with that. And obviously, you know, perhaps it has been affecting them a bit more this season, playing away from, from home. Obviously, they had a season of, uh, of playing behind closed doors. And I think that had the largest percentage of away wins we've ever seen in the league. So it's probably not coincidence. So perhaps they have struggled with the crowds and obviously having the home crowd behind them, um, you know, seemed to make a difference. So uh, perhaps we do owe, uh, you know, Granite Xhaka a, a beer or something for, for what he did. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, not, I don't normally agree with that sort of thing either, but it, it did seem to play a part on Sunday. I mean, to be honest, though, it is a tiny bit of a worry simply because you touch on the, the, the away performances there and things like that. And I think, the, the lack of intensity that Liverpool have shown defensively this season, a, a lot of it does look, according to the eye test at least, as it, it could look like a lack of motivation. It, it looks like a lack of hunger and it's kind of like we've completed it, mate. You know, we, we don't really fancy doing it again. We're not really that bothered anymore type thing. It has looked a little bit like that. And if it wasn't Jürgen Klopp in charge, I would have bigger concerns about that, that Liverpool are just not particularly motivated. Like, if you look over at the Etihad, I think it's interesting how Pep has just kind of moved away from really seasoned performers and, and dropped them pretty quickly at the first sign of, like, that lack of motivation. Like, say, for example, Cancelo, he's now at Bayern Munich, full folding, so gifted but just never plays for Manchester City this season, at least. And some of that seems to stem from what he's like on the training ground. Laporte, I think, is having issues at the minute in terms of his availability and stuff like that. And I think he's putting cryptic things up on social media that I've seen. Uh, Kyle Walker can't get in the team. And I don't think Klopp has as much of a luxury to make those rotations at Anfield, just in, in comparison to the depth that City have. I think they're all roughly the same level, whereas Liverpool seem to have a bit more first strings and second strings but the whole motivation thing again it's it's an intangible isn't it we can't really put a number on this or anything like that but the way in which Liverpool reacted to that that kind of um that Jaha moment and the way Liverpool have reacted in certain big games this season like up until recently Liverpool's record in big games was was really good you know we, we beat Manchester United 7-0 beat City at home we've now drew with Arsenal top of the league um, 
And those are big games that you really don't need much motivation for because it's already there. You, you know you've got to turn up. Um, so I'm not really sure what I'm getting at here. But what 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 do you <laughs> think? What do you think of that? Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, as you say, it's it's sort of impossible for us to know. You'd have to sit each player down individually and ask them. I mean, I think obviously um, Guardiola has a clear advantage in the sense that he can, um, you know bomb out Cancelo and he'll get a new 50 million fullback this summer probably to to replace him. I mean, that's his sort of standard yeah. um, operating procedure is to, is to buy a new fullback when something goes a bit wrong or whatever. And, and obviously Klopp doesn't have the ability to do that. You know, he does get accused of being too loyal. And whether that's the case or not, he's also operating in a, in a situation where we know that Liverpool aren't going to buy loads of um, expensive players summer after summer and you know hopefully they get a few this year but you know what I mean he can't be as as ruthless with his squad for the simple reason that if he bombed out all these players who's he going to get in to to replace them and um yeah on the motivation point I'm not sure I mean I still think that the the sort of disappointing end of last season will have will have taken a toll I think it's fair to question um you know, the sort of physical preparation and build-up, whether that's been right with Liverpool this season. I think they admitted they got the pre-season wrong and they've sort of been yeah. on the back foot from the from the get-go on that. And obviously the injuries have have played a huge part. They've lost, a, you know, a lot more players to to injury than, than other teams or at least playing time and games lost and things like this. I mean, I think it's probably human nature that, that there will be a sort of motivation question because, as you said, I mean, they've, they've won everything. Um they haven't yet won the Europa League and it's looking like they might at best have a chance of doing that next season. So um, perhaps that'll be a bit of motivation. But um, yeah. yeah, it's sort of human nature to wonder if if that is an issue. I, I think it's perhaps it's been more a physical thing than a, than a mental thing. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the performances may suggest otherwise. You know, they, they haven't had that intensity, be it physical, be it mental. It, it's been perhaps the biggest issue of the of the season and to see them perform like they did in the second half against Arsenal it's almost frustrating as you I think you said almost like a negative in a way because it just makes you think well, where has this been why has this you know we perhaps can't expect it for 90 minutes every week but there's been so many flat performances that you have to question where has it been for at least some of those games why have they not been able to to deliver that level of intensity because on the whole it it hasn't been there and they've clearly still got it and it shouldn't just take a you know a bad foul from an opposition player to to bring it out of them really analyzing anfield on the blood red channel yeah i agree with you in terms of i think it's i do think it's predominantly physical but in terms of the mental side um you know you mentioned that liverpool have have won everything and i do i do think it's interesting that one of liverpool's better performances this season was in the first game of the campaign in the I don't know if it's called the community or the charity shield anymore to be honest but we beat Manchester City 3-1 I think and we were very much on it on the day I felt we, we performed really well and I think after the game I can't remember who it was it might have been Milner might have been Trent one of them said that we wanted to start our season today we really wanted to go for this because this is the one trophy that we haven't got the, the, what, the one thing we haven't won obviously they go and win it and it, it does feel a little bit maybe i'm just putting two and two together and getting five here but it does feel a little bit like that was the kind of moment where they were like we've completed it we, we've done it and then the next game was fulham and we got we deserve to lose my opinion on that day then we go to palace draw then we go to manchester united lose and it's kind of snowballed from there, I think. But I, I don't know that the mental thing, as I said, I, I don't really question these players in terms of being mentality monsters necessarily. It's more a case of like the motivation to go and do it all again when you have technically already done it all and it's still the same faces. And this is kind of why you need new players, I suppose. I've seen an interview not too long ago, BC Sports, Rio Ferdinand was speaking to Pep Guardiola. And he kind of asked them, you know, how do you get players to, to keep going, to keep doing it for you over and over and over again after winning so much? And Guardiola asked him, how many Premier Leagues did you win? Rio Ferdinand said six. And Pep said, uh, was, was the team the same at the start compared to the sixth? And Rio said no. And, that, that, and Pep just kind of put his hands up and said, you have to change. It's hard. It's not nice. 
but you have to change and maybe Liverpool haven't done enough of that to keep things fresh and obviously we're suffering from it at the moment. But as you say, against Arsenal, we performed pretty well and the numbers highlight that. Um, so Arsenal posted their fewest number of shots all season in the Premier League with nine, I think. They faced their most shots, I think, in any game in the Premier League this season with 21, I think it was. And game state did play a part because towards the end of the game, Arsenal were kind of, you know, they were substituting on centre-backs and just trying to hold on to their lead. But Liverpool posted and expected goals of 3.9, obviously including the penalty. But Bees, that is a lot. It is a lot. I mean, I think it's one of those games with the sort of nature of some of the chances that the the expected goals figures vary depending on where you look. I mean, 5.38 had it as 5.1 for Liverpool, which I think was a little bit generous. <laughs> when yeah. one of them is like Canate trying to chest the ball in, um, they perhaps gave that a higher rating than it, than it was truly worth. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is that sort of, it was that sort of level of attacking performance. I mean, if you look at the the understat model isn't necessarily the best, but it is one that covers the entirety of the of the Klopp era, where a lot of others don't. And yeah. on their model, it was Liverpool's fourth best attacking performance in the league um, under Klopp. I think they gave it 4.6 xG or something like that. And some of the other games that have been better, there was a 6-0 against Leeds last season, but Liverpool had two penalties in that game. So you can kind of ignore that and another one against Hull in 2016-17 I think they might have had two penalties in that but you know we're, we're talking about games against sort of relegation threatened teams I mean this is against the the league leaders and they're putting up let's call it four expected goals give or take um, depending on which model you look at and the thing with that as well I mean I, I haven't sort of looked at the breakdown too closely but again an enormous chunk of that will be in the second half you know they, they didn't create a lot Certainly for the first sort of 40 minutes, I think Salah had one big chance from a from a Henderson pass. But really, you know, they, they hadn't created very much at all um, prior to the to the Salah goal. And so, you know, they're, they're sort of registering probably three expected goals against the league leaders in the second half. And all right, there's a penalty in there. But I mean, that's just that's just remarkable. And, and as well, the figure of eight, um, they had eight big chances, according to Opta. And I think it's the first time any team's had eight this season. It's pretty rare. I can remember a game Liverpool had at Tottenham in 13-14 when they won 5-0. You might remember that one. Yeah, um, Liverpool, I think, I think Liverpool had eight big chances thing. that day. Sorry? John Flanagan scored on that one, I think. Yes, that is the game. That is the game. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, yeah, they had eight big chances that day. Um I don't think they've they've had it since, or it's it's really really rare. And and I mean, bear in mind as well, that's against a, a Tottenham team who sacked their manager the next day and were happy to appoint <laughs> Tim Sherwood. I mean, that is not a serious or a good football team um, that Liverpool will have eight big chances against. And all right, it was away from home, but they've they've done it against the against the league leaders. And I think pretty much all of them were were created, as in they were not coming about from opposition you know, defensive errors on the ball or they were from, you know, rebounds and making the most of this. This is one player passing to another to create a big chance. I mean, it's incredible that they had eight of them against a team as, as good as Arsenal. Perhaps you can argue Arsenal aren't quite as good as their as their results have been this season. I think that's, that's perhaps fair. But no, I mean, the, the attacking performance, I mean, you can have no complaints aside from, you know, they should have scored more than two goals. Yeah, it, it felt like Anfield certainly influenced the game. I think it, it's influenced Arsenal over the years, certainly. And it's a little bit of a hoodoo over Arsenal life. But in the first half, they played like that wasn't the case. And then gradually, maybe it gets in the reds a little bit and it starts to change. But one of the reasons Liverpool posted such a high uh, shot total, expected goal total, whatever you want to call it, is because of the man who, who missed the penalty, actually. But... Aside from missing the penalty, he was extremely involved. And one of the reasons he was so involved was because Liverpool adopted a new shape. Uh, it was an interesting one, quarters off guard. Obviously, it was 4-3-3 on the defensive side of the game. But when Liverpool had possession, Trent was drifting into central midfield to play next to Fabinho as like a double pivot. And... On the back of him making that movement, Robertson 
Woodtruck inside and form a back three with Virgil van Dijk and Ibrahima Kanate. And Henderson and Jones would push up. And you kind of had this 3-2-5 shape going on, uh, which is what Arsenal have used all season, funnily enough, well, most of the season. And also what City are using now with... with um, Who's making the same? John Stones making the same move yeah. for Manchester City. So it's very in vogue at the minute, very in trend. Um, I didn't overly expect it, but what did you think of it? Yeah, I wasn't expecting it either. I thought it was um, interesting that Klopp said in his press conference something about, oh, we've done this before, but maybe not to the same extent. I mean, it certainly hasn't felt like they've done it to anywhere near the extent, at least I, as far as I've noticed. I mean, like you say, sort of in vogue, I mean, it's this thing like you, you, you go through spells in the Premier League where, um, you know, Antonio Conte had success at Chelsea with a back three. So all of a sudden, half the teams are playing a, a back yeah. three to sort of try and copy that. And maybe there's there's sort of an element of that here. Like you say, City and Arsenal have, have played in that way. But um, when you look at the sort of like average positions for Trent. I mean, obviously average positions aren't, you know, perfect by any means because it, it, you know, it shows you just the average of all the touches and stuff like that. But it, it's certainly his closest, furthest in and closest to the centre circle, at least in the last two seasons I looked at. Um, you know, so that it, it, it appears to have been a very definite shift. And I think in the first half, it was fair to question if it was working. It didn't feel like it was, Um Certainly sort of from a, you know, when you're watching it as a fan, it's hard to have a, a sort of clear-headed perspective on it, but it didn't sort of feel like it was working. And then obviously the second half is slightly different because it was all pretty much Liverpool sort of keeping Arsenal penned in. So it didn't feel like it was as obvious a thing there. Um, but it's certainly an interesting one. I mean, to see if they'll use it going forward. Um, I mean, did you think it was working in the first half? I mean, I guess Arsenal's performance would suggest it, it wasn't, but I mean... What did you make of it? It certainly stood out. I don't think it was working, but I don't know. No, I, I don't overly think it was working, but I saw, I, I checked Twitter, which you should never do, really, but I checked Twitter and I saw a lot of people just absolute panic stations, just terrified at the thought of this change and the fact that we weren't playing well, they were putting everything down to this tactical shift and it was it's not where you can go back to 43 and all this. And I think in certain situations like that, you have to be a little bit more patient because I think even if you come up with a a, a different strategy like that, the bottom line is your application still has to be top-notch for any kind of system to work as intended. Um, Arsenal were playing the same shape, essentially, but it was just working a lot better for them because they, A, played better with the ball, made better decisions on the ball, and B, were better defensively than Liverpool in terms of regaining it. So that that helps a lot. And then just gradually, as the, as the game goes on, th- those roles kind of reverse. Liverpool up the intensity, start making better decisions on the ball, be a bit more confident on the ball. And then it starts to normalise a bit then. So... I think when you introduce these changes, it's, you can't really introduce it for 25 minutes, panic and just start screaming on the pitch, go back to normal. You know, you, you can't really be doing that. So I don't think it was ideal. I think it was a, a bold move to introduce it for a match against Arsenal of all teams. Um, and in terms of Trent, I, I thought that, that Klopp comment was, was curious because I think... I mean, as I said, I checked Twitter and some people, I saw some people saying Trent has been in, inverting like this for the past 12, 18 months. For me, absolutely no chance. He's been inverting, definitely. But as far as I'm concerned, all of his inverting takes place in the final third slash opponent's yeah. half. Liverpool were doing this from Allison, from the goalkeeper. Trent was playing as a, almost like a DM like a, a double six with Fabinho. I haven't seen that. I, I don't think that this has been the thing that we've, we've done before, really. So it was definitely a, a big a big shift. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see if, if Klopp keeps this moving forward, I think. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's it's happened before. His inverting has been sort of in the final third, you know, moving up the flank with the ball, maybe exchange with Henderson or Salah, who's ever there, and, and sort of move inside and, and try and do stuff from there. I've not noticed it happening sort of further back. 
thinking about it afterwards, it sort of reminded me, it's different, but it sort of reminded me of that game at, um, I think it was Brighton in the FA Cup recently, where he played a front three of Elliot, uh, Gakpo and Salah, and everyone was questioning the order of the, the players across left to right, thinking that maybe Salah should be central, Gakpo on the left. But of course, Klopp was doing it thinking, well, I've got Nunes to come back on the left and maybe that will work out. And we saw against the likes of, of Man United that it did. So he's not averse to doing these things that take the fans or the opposition by surprise that seem really strange, but actually in the long term sort of play out. So it will be interesting to see if this is is similar. I mean, it's a bold, bold move to do it um, in such a big game against such a strong team and, and a team in, in such good form and, and playing confidently and, and stuff like that, you know. We've seen um, various sort of tactical changes this uh, season. I mean, obviously, earlier on, there was the spell of, of sort of different formations and stuff after that Brighton 3-3. They sort of ripped it up and tried various different things. And this is just another one to sort of to add to that. Obviously, the, the previous ones were um, didn't really last too long. So we'll have to wait and see if this does the same. But um, I don't know. I sort of feel like they, they kind of overthink things with, with Trent. I mean, I can't help thinking that he does all his best work, you know, basically as a right back, an attacking right back. But, you know, that's when he when he's had his sort of best runs in the team and stuff like this. I mean, I can't get away from the fact that, you know, he once got 21 assists in a, in a run of 38 league games. Now, it was across two seasons. It wasn't in a season, but like the record for assists in a Premier League season is 20. And he's topped that in effectively a season playing as a right back delivering crosses from out wide and stuff like that. And, um, yeah. you know, I know you use the phrase galaxy brain and, and stuff like that, but whether it's sort of <laughs> overthinking transposition, but it's like you've literally made the most creative player in Premier League history, you could argue, 21 assists in 38 games. And now you're moving around and asking him to do these different things. And if he even manages to match that, it'll be good. But it doesn't, you know, you'll then lose the... the assists from from right back it doesn't automatically mean he's going to get 30 assists playing these different positions and stuff like that so it's an interesting one but I always think they're sort of overthinking it it'll you know it'll take a, a long spell of seeing this for me to be convinced that it's the the best way to use him when he's been so effective in the past but um not that I'm claiming to know more than Klopp of course but uh <laughs> I don't know it, it it feels like it doesn't feel like the right move to me but Klopp could argue, well, maybe Trent's lost his motivation. We were talking about that earlier. Maybe he's lost his motivation as a, as yeah. a right back. It's certainly looked that way with some of his defending this season as if he, he can't be bothered. I, I can't imagine that's entirely true. But maybe he thinks, well, I'll get more out of Trent by freshening up his role in the team and, and more for the team. But um, I think we've got a long way to, to go until we can be certain that that's the case anyway. Yeah, well, one of the issues is that I don't think Robertson could do it from the opposite side. And I think in terms of Trent being this right-sided um, attacking presence who's so creative and stuff, I think previous years, the way in which we've compensated for that going the opposite way is we've had a marathon man in Jordan Henderson covering for him relentlessly. And we've had a midfield department that has been able to control games and, and sweep up any loose balls that stem from Trent's risks. Um as of right now, at least, up until potentially the summer, we don't have as much of a safety net to protect the team from Trent's risks. Um, so I suppose moving him into the centre to play as a six alongside Fabinho at times um, could potentially resolve that for the next couple of weeks slash months up until a point where we potentially get um, fresh legs in the summer and, and somebody who can cover them going the other way like a, like a piece Jordan Henderson. Um, but in, in terms of Salah, touched on Salah earlier, Salah is obviously one of the, for me, one of the main beneficiaries of this if it, if it does stay. I touched that he was very involved. So he's never taken more Premier League, more shots in a Premier League game than his total of nine against Arsenal. Top of the league, by the way. Nine shots. Um and on top of that, it it could have it's ten really if you include the penalty. Which we don't yeah. do, but it's it's nine shots is a lot, essentially. I think his average for the season is probably around three per per ninety. So to take nine is daft. Um it was also his his most expected goals 
uh, in a single game for the season. That's non-penalty as well. That's not including the penalty that he took. It was his most touches in a Premier League game this season. And by some distance as well. I think he took 67 touches. I think his previous best was around 53 for the season. So that's quite a jump. And I think his average across his Liverpool career is about 43-ish, I think. So 67 is a lot. And again, it's against the top of the league, remember. And on top of that, he posted his joint most attempted dribbles uh, in a Premier League game this season with seven. But he, he completed none of them. He succeeded with none of his, none of his dribbles, yeah, which isn't great. And I suppose we have to pat uh, Gabriel on, the, on his back for that, really. I think he performed really well. I think maybe Klopp expected Zinchenko to be up against Salah. But I suppose that's what this... 3-2-5 system does. It, it kind of clogs the middle, attracts players into the middle, and if Trent is going away from the right towards the middle, it kind of leaves the whole of the right side for Salah, and passing lanes open up to him a lot. He can engage in 1v1s a lot, and it should benefit him. I don't think he played... It didn't feel like he played particularly well in terms of, like, maybe his end product. But then you look at the fact he's posted nine shots and you think, you know, with most touches and stuff, you, that's not a bad thing. I always try to praise these players who post a lot of shots, even if they don't score too much. I've always tried to put praise on the players who get the shots because I think it's I think it's a quality, I think it's a skill. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, you know, we won't be seeing nine or ten shots from him from him every week. But you know, in fairness to to Klopp, I mean, he he's been criticised quite a lot for uh, well, a lot of things this season. But I mean, certainly Salah's sort of lack of involvement, being sort of too yeah. wide at times, things like that. And I think it was one of those things again. Possibly it was a little bit overblown. I mean, I know there was some stats floating around that he was basically having the same proportion of his touches on the sort of wide areas as he as he ever has. It's sort of perhaps just felt like it more because he wasn't um, contributing quite as much. But um, yeah, I mean, anything that, that brings him into the game more was uh, is a good thing. And I think, you know, nine shots, I mean, there's a couple of big chances in there. I'm not saying they were all, you know, brilliant decisions to to shoot, but he, he could easily have had more. He also set up that chance for, for Nunes. Uh, that was Salah created that, another big chance for Liverpool there. The dribbles thing is is interesting. I think I've I've written about it in the past. It's long been an issue. Sort of Liverpool don't dribble past teams very much at all, and the the sort of uh, natural thing with Liverpool is to think, oh, they've they've spotted something in the data that means that they're sort of not bothering or they're they, you know they're not too concerned about yeah. it and stuff like that. But um, you know, you saw I think whether you saw this, I think Crystal Palace set a record for like dribbles completed against Leeds last weekend, and obviously with with Leeds coming up this weekend for Liverpool, it'll be interesting to see if they try and do something similar. Um, but yeah, I'd say I, it's just, it's a strange one. It didn't feel like Salah played brilliantly, but then you, you have to say, well, 10 shots and a, and a big chance created is, is, uh, is not to be sniffed at. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at Manchester City and Arsenal this season, it, it, the, the, this three, two, five shape, it, it does allow those wide players to, to get on the ball a lot and to engage in in one v ones with whoever they're facing, you think of Jack Grealish, Riyad Mahrez, Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli. All four of those players, you'd say that have had really good seasons, and a lot of it stems from this. And as you say, Salah maybe hasn't been as involved as usual at Liverpool um, this season, even though he's still scoring plenty of goals and things like that. Um, but if this is kept for the rest of the season, it'll be interesting to see just how involved he's able to become. Because if it was a Salah, yeah. he was very much on his game in terms of his, his end product. Um, he could have really cleaned up. He, he, he could have um, posted the hats to comfortably considering he scored anyway. Then he got a penalty. And in addition to that, he was like a further eight shots that didn't end up in the back of the net. So um, that's certainly one to watch. But I think overall, showing up the Arsenal game, I think for me, I, I, I tweeted this after the game, but it felt like a bit of a reminder for me, like a bit of a reassuring um, 45 minutes to suggest that you, you're never really as far away as you think. And although there's been talk this week actually about this overhaul that's kind of incoming, 
we do need bodies, definitely. But I don't think we're as far away as, as some people suggest. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. No, I mean, I think we, I think we touched on this last week, but I mean, you, you only have to look really at, at Manchester United and how bad they were this season, and then sorry, last season, yeah. and then you know this season they're going to finish in the top four. It looks like, and they've already got one trophy and potentially win a couple more. I mean, their turnaround since last season has been, you know, remarkable. And I obviously didn't watch every game, but I doubt they showed a half of football as good as Liverpool did um, in the second half last weekend. So, so things can turn around. Um, pretty quickly, and maybe this new formation is is partly the way to do it. We'll have to wait and see. But um, yeah, I think some um, good additions this summer are obviously required. But it's not unreasonable to think that they could make a pretty immediate impact, and Liverpool could be sort of looking something like their best um, next season. You know, pretty quickly. But um, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll talk about who's going to come in or who might come in, since there's one player who it seems is definitely not coming in, who we all thought it might be, and the sort of Pinning our hopes on, is that too strong? I don't know. But um, yeah, obviously we were expecting Jude Bellingham and that appears to now not be happening. Yeah, well, there is the segue. I'll, I'll thank you for that assist, Mick, because that was very <laughs> nice, that. Um, but yeah, it's we're going to have to talk about it, aren't we? Um, I sent out a newsletter yesterday, actually, and I introduced the newsletter by just saying everything was great on Tuesday night. The sun was shining and the birds were singing and then out of nowhere... Um, there's a mass report from multiple different outlets that Liverpool have ended their pursuit of Jude Bellingham, for those who aren't aware. Um, and the kind of word has been, you're going to cost too much in the sense of Liverpool need a lot more than just one centre mid. So he's costing too much in that in that sense. As in Liverpool are going to need more players if we get Bellingham on his own. It's not going to allow us to invest in these other areas, that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, what were your, what was your reaction, mate? We'll start with that. Well, it was funny because I wasn't, um, I was uh, actually rehearsing with my band on Tuesday night and then sort of switched my phone on afterwards and it just sort of, you know, various WhatsApp groups and, and tweets sort of flashing <laughs> up and stuff like this. I mean, clearly it is disappointing news. I mean, you know, as, as much as some of, you know, optimists have pointed out that Liverpool ended their interest in Van Dijk and Alisson and stuff like that. And, you know, they did eventually sign those guys. You know, you could you could cling to that as a sort of sign that um, that, that perhaps the deal isn't dead entirely. But I think that the, the underwriting logic of Liverpool need more than one player and he would take up most of their budget, you would imagine, you know, seems seems a sound logic. So it is disappointing it does put pressure on the transfer business that they do. I mean, nobody can be certain that Bellingham would be an immediate hit as, as good as he is. But clearly, fans would be very excited about next season if Bellingham had signed. And assuming he doesn't, they're almost certainly going to be over underwhelmed Sorry, by whoever they bring in, even if that's players of the standard of, you know, Mason Mount, who's a you know Champions League winner and, you know, plays for England and stuff like this it will still seem underwhelming compared to Bellingham, which probably isn't fair on the guys who who will join this summer, but it's just the reality of the of the situation. I think, um, you know, fans have, have got their hopes up so much about Bellingham and obviously perhaps we, you know, we in the media uh, have to take some uh, blame for that because inevitably there's been a lot of stories written about Bellingham and what he can add and how Liverpool will improve and all these sorts of things. And obviously we write them because people want to read them because people are excited by transfers. So it sort of works both ways. But yeah, clearly there was a lot of people, a lot of excitement about the, the potential of him joining. And like everyone, you know, I, I will be disappointed if he doesn't. I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world. But as I say, I think it adds pressure on whoever comes in next because they're not going to be Jude Bellingham. And that's what the fans were, were hoping for. Yeah. I will take some of the blame, to be honest, because we, we've talked about him quite a lot on this show. Um, we've talked about his numbers, plenty of Q&A questions about him, and I've spent newsletters uh, newsletters out about him, because he's a very good player. <clears throat> he's uh, He can do it all, and you don't get many of those centre-mids. He's such a well-rounded centre-mid, such a clock player, um, very Steven Gerrard in the sense that contributes across the board. He's not like a specialist in terms of 
which is what a lot of midfielders tend to tend to be like. If you think of what Henderson's good at, we all know what he's good at, and we all know what he's not so good at. If you think of the same with Harvey Elliott, it's clear. With Bellingham, just pretty much good at everything, and it's nice to have those players. And despite being nineteen, he's captain of his club. He's homegrown. He's English. Got experience of of England, obviously. Um, can play as a six. Can play as an eight. Can play as a ten. He's physical. He covers a lot of distance. He's top of the Bundesliga this season for duels. One um, scores plenty of big goals. Very progressive with his passing. Top of the Bundesliga for dribbles this season. He's just he's just a special player. Um, generational probably, but I don't know. I don't know where to stand with this in terms of like whether we should believe that it's dead or whether it's negotiation tactics or whatever. Where do you stand on that one? Yeah, like I said before, I think, you know, we've seen similar situations in the past, but I'm inclined to believe it's probably um, dead, this one, as I say, just because the money probably needs to go on three players, not one player. I think Liverpool, unfortunately, have backed themselves into this corner. I mean, I think it's fair to ask uh, the question, you know, after they didn't get too many last season, should they have gone for Bellingham then, you know? I don't think it's a. Sh- it can't be a shock to them how much he's going to cost. So, so why has that suddenly sort of become the deciding factor as 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 expensive as he's going to be? I thought it was interesting um, whether you want to share your opinion. I saw your Twitter poll about you know is it better to sign one generational sure. talent or I can't remember how you phrased it two very good players or whatever. Um, yeah. I think people were siding on the generational talent last time I saw the the vote. I could see both sides of the argument. I think. It depends, doesn't it? When you know you can't divorce the the financial aspect of it from the from the the reality of it. You know, a generational talent is fantastic, but if he if he destroys your transfer budget in the process, that that's inevitably a a consequence when you're you know running the way that Liverpool are. But um, I sort of I think I lean towards two players being better than one. But um, what do, have you come to a decision on that? Yeah, well, for those who aren't aware, I, I, I said. Um... You've got a massive problem department in your squad that needs an upgrade. How would you rather tackle it? And one answer was one generational player. And the other answer was two very good players. And I got, there was 2,530 votes. And 58.5% of the votes picked the generational player on his own. And 41.5% picked two very good players now when i posted that i didn't specifically there's no right answer to it and i didn't think there was a right answer at the time i was kind of getting the consensus really i don't only know what i think but i think if somebody if like a, a chelsea fan had posted that and i was completely not invested i think i would probably be like you in terms of leaning ever so slightly towards two very good players but um, it depends on the size of the overhaul. Obviously, there's lo- there's lots of context that is lacking in, in that question. I appreciate that. But um, in terms of Liverpool's current situation, I don't. I, I said in the newsletter this week. I don't really think it's a. If we want positives from this, I don't think it's a Alison Becker void, in terms of, or a Van Dyke void, in terms of like you're missing that one absolute pillar to transform a department or a, a particular problem that you're suffering from. Liverpool were absolutely leaking two more goals than they deserved to concede when they signed Alisson. And him on his own was going to make a huge difference to that. In midfield, Liverpool just need to become intense again. They just need to become functional again. And we need to start putting pressure on the ball again. And you can do that without signing an absolute world-beater. Um, as disappointing as it is to to not sign him, if that's if that's not going to happen, if it's not a no goer, Liverpool can still get around this by signing two or three. I don't know, two or three fifty million players, as opposed to one one hundred and fifty million player. Um, Liverpool can still get around it, and it's, but the bit the big thing, and it's a big if. It depends who you sign. It completely depends who you sign. Liverpool have been linked with a whole host of names. Some of them are more keen on than others. And 
if we get it wrong in terms of the type of midfielder that we end up getting in, we will probably keep suffering from these issues. But if we get it right, it will probably disappear over the course of the summer, all these midfield concerns, and we'll probably be a different team next season, even without Bellingham. But you've got to get it right, and I've got a bit less faith that Liverpool are going to do that purely because Michael Edwards is no longer there. Ward is leaving at the end of the season. Ian Graham's leaving at the end of the season. So you just don't know. But I do think we have... I do. If people want to hear it, I do think we can still become a great team again comfortably without getting Bellingham, as annoying as it is. <laughs> yeah, I think as well, just one other thing on the <clears throat> Bellingham. I mean, obviously, I think people worry that, well, if he doesn't come to Liverpool, he's going to end up at, at Manchester City. Um, and yeah. nobody, you know, of a Liverpool persuasion would want to see that. I mean, that would just rub salt in the wound as well, wouldn't it? But um, I think you're right. I think, you know, obviously, people looking at Liverpool's midfield have have probably got concerns with, with all the players, pretty much to, to some extent or other. Not that they're all bad players, but that, you know, there are valid concerns about quite a lot of them. And Bellingham's only only one man, you know. He, he, they could bring him in and he'd still have to play with, like, say, Fabinho and Henderson, who people dislike. You know, he's, he's, he can't solve it all on his own. But as you say, the, the big question mark is, is where they go in terms of who they buy and, and how well does it work? And do you have the faith that it can be repeated i mean i think like you say ian graham um going obviously as a sort of stats guy myself you know it's uh it, that's a disappointment but it is good that that will spearman i think is taking over and um you know he's a very yeah. smart guy as well so hopefully they can sort of keep on that analytical um track but yeah i think it you know if they bought in um i'm just going to name i'd say they bought in mount and uh nunez and maybe james ward prowse if southampton get relegated something like that. Um, I think there are, you know, possibly better players out there, but I mean, would that be a good summer? Say three players like, like that, say somebody, a good player who's sort of not, you know, from a big side and then somebody from a relegated side and somewhere sort of in between. I mean, that sort of feels like the kind of summer Liverpool might have something along those lines, but I mean, how would you yeah, feel would, if that wasn't the summer? I, I, I would be, I think I'd be concerned if those were the players. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not overly concerned how we do it in terms of if it is a relegated player, that wouldn't. That wouldn't bother me. It. It would depend on mm-hmm. who. Who. Who it is. Essentially, I'm not. People who've been listening to my, uh, my content over the past year or so will, will, will probably know my thoughts on Matias Nunes. I think he's got a lot of potential. Really good player, but absolutely does not solve. What Liverpool have suffered from this season, in my opinion, um, I don't think it's a coincidence. For example, I don't, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that he's played a lot of the season at Wolves away from central midfield. He's been deployed on the left, on the right, I think, as a ten, and he's been tried in a two. It didn't work. Um, so I, I, I would rather us not go there. To be honest, I would rather us go for players who are going to restore that kind of workhorse, ball-winning energy mm. in the centre of the pitch. Someone like Moises Casado, I think, is is a good is a good fit. I think Mount is a brilliant fit. I'd, I'd love Mason Mount. So if we, I want to put it out there now, to be honest, that if we don't get Bellingham but we get Mount, that shouldn't result in us looking at Mount and thinking, it's just Mason Mount, isn't it? Mason Mount's a great player. So if, if we can sign Mason Mount, I'll be more than happy about that. And I think I, I said in the newsletter yesterday, someone like Manuel Agate looks looks really really good for for Sporting. Um, his numbers look brilliant in terms of pressing and things like that. And he looks like an absolute dog in the midfield. So someone like that, I would like. I've seen links with Jordi Tillemans. Mm, not sure about that one. I know he's free, but it feels a bit well free in the sense that you know he's there's no transfer mm. fee, but um, he. Is a bit like Fabinho for me in the sense that he's played an awful lot considering he's 25, 26 or something now. But he's been playing like more than 2,000 minutes of league football. This is just in the league since the mm-hmm. age of 16. So yeah. I, I would be, be concerned. My point on yeah. yeah, yeah. I would be concerned that he's got. I, I don't see how he would address Liverpool's drop 
this season that, that this is my big thing. I, it, whoever we get in, they have to address Liverpool's drop in some way. They have to add energy and intensity and industry to the midfield, and they have to make it difficult for opponents to cut us open. And they have to provide us with a platform to take risks through Trent, through Salah, through Jota, whoever it may be. Um, and we just haven't really had that platform this season. I think some of this as well, the whole overhaul thing, maybe not wanting to dedicate so much money to Bellingham because we want to dedicate money elsewhere. That does make me think maybe, A, Klopp is wanting another centre-half this summer. Or B, maybe he's not completely sold on Fabinho um, in terms of also wanting a six because we've we've been linked with a few eights mostly. Mm-hmm. Declan Rice, for example, is a six. I've seen some links to him lately, so maybe Klopp's starting to become like less and less convinced that Fabinho can just go again, and maybe we need another six. And you know, Pesetic is injured; he can't really be expected to do it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on Declan Rice. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I mean, he's a good player. I think he would be a, a be a good addition. I mean, I suppose someone like him probably, you know, not to the same extent as as Bellingham, but he would obviously take up a sizable sort of chunk of the budget, and it uh, you know leaves you to wonder what else would be available for the other signings that they need to make if they were to get somebody like him. But I mean, I like him as a player. I think he'd be a good addition, but it all depends on this sort of, like we say, the balance of the, of the finances, how they're going to make it all sort of work from there. I think as well, like you, you mentioned a minute ago about like Nunes being a good player, but not necessarily the right player. I mean, I think that's, they could be, you could argue that's a concern about Liverpool's sort of recent transfer business. I mean, I, you know, I think most people would agree that, Cody Gakpo and Darwin Nunes are good players, but are they the players that Liverpool needed? You know, when people say FSG haven't spent any money or Liverpool haven't spent any money, I mean, they have spent money. You can argue about whether they've spent it in the right areas recently, but, you know, they have spent money and I think they've bought good players. It's just whether they were the right players for for what the team needed and making sure they sign the players that the that the team needs this summer is is obviously vitally important because if they don't, then I, you know, I don't really know where they, where they go from there. But... Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if you can sort out rice for us, uh, Josh, I'd be happy with that. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a decent thing. I don't I don't mind Declan Rice at all. But as I said, for me, he's more of a six. So if we did get Declan Rice, for me, that would either spell the end of Fabinho in terms of a transfer, or it would suggest maybe Fabinho is going to be more of a second string or more of a rotation player or whatever. But I do think that Liverpool. I've been saying for ages so long on this podcast that Liverpool need midfielders and it was a massive oversight last summer to, to not get a centre mid in, give Milner a new contract and get in Arthur Mello on loan. It was just a disaster and it was clear to see at the time that that was going to be a disaster. And this week, obviously, I mean, I've done this a million times this season when you just write the Liverpool piece and you get to a point in the piece where you have to provide a very brief overview of the midfield and why it's a problem. And I wrote this week that like you've got Naby Keita and Alex Oxley Chamberlain there who are both injury prone and out of contract at the end of the summer. You've got Thiago and Jordan Henderson who are both starters but both aged 32. You've got Milner who's 37 and you've got Fabinho who's 29 going on 35 really. And then you've got Curtis Jones who I think Klopp by now will have probably expected to come on a bit more than he has. I think he's been unlucky with that, mostly with that weird injuries and things like that. So that's mm-hmm. been a shame. You've got Fabio Carvalho, who's just I don't know. I don't really know what the plan's been with, with him. Really, I mean, quite clearly number ten. We we don't feel the number ten, so I'm not really sure what's going on with that one. Harvey Elias is probably the only player who's lived up to any expectation in terms of development, but he's still only. 20 as of earlier this month so we do really have a a problematic midfield there I think by by this stage maybe I think in comparison to what's actually happened I think in their previous analysis of our midfield I think Klopp will have maybe expected Fabinho to still be normal Jones to have come on more than he has 
And I think he'd have probably expected to just give a little extension to Naby Keita. Whereas in reality, Fabinho fell off a cliff. Naby's leaving. And Keita's young is where he was two seasons ago. So you really do have a... And, you know, as I said, Thiago and Henderson are both 32. So you do have a massive void there. And it's, it's minimum two players, possibly three, depending on whether you want a six or not, really. Yeah, I mean, we've obviously been talking about, um, you know, tactical changes and stuff like that. I mean, if they were to make a sort of permanent switch to a to a different formation, that may affect things. But yeah, I think I think two minimum is 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 maybe underselling it. I mean, I, I was of that mindset, but as the season has gone on, I've probably switched to three minimum, and um, wouldn't take much for me to say four minimum. But um, <laughs> are, are you talking just, I think it was... midfielders there or transfers <laughs> as a whole? No, I was talking midfielders. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of joking when I say four, but I mean, I think <laughs> I, I think three, if you think that, you know, no Cater, no Oxlade-Chamberlain, probably no Milner, the issues you've mentioned with the with the other guys as well. I mean, you could make a case for three and I don't think, you know, I don't think that's ridiculous by any means to to say that they need to three, just to sort of fill in the gaps and the issues that they've they've got. I mean... As well, just another point. I mean, like on Elliot and Carvalho. I mean, I think they both started together in the in the Merseyside derby at, at Goodison and stuff. I mean, they're like pretty much the shortest players in the in the Premier League. Or you know, I think Elliot's the joint shortest player to make over like ten starts or something like that. And they're, yeah. they're good players on the ball and stuff like that. But you know, they're not what Liverpool need in midfield necessarily. Certainly from a defensive sort of standpoint. So just bringing in players with a bit more physicality and, and stuff like that. I mean, it isn't a simple question of, I'll just get some tall guys, but it sort of feels like it's sometimes just, you know, some some bigger units who can um, dominate physically yeah. a bit more because for all their strengths, those guys aren't going to be able to do it. I mean, I think, again, possibly they were hoping that, that Curtis Jones could perhaps be that guy. And he's he's been unlucky with, with injuries, as you say, sort of eye injuries and things like that so that you couldn't have possibly anticipated him getting. But obviously he's not played all that much in the last... 18 months, so hasn't really sort of kicked on. Um, whether he's capable of it, I don't know, but he's not really had that opportunity. So, um, yeah, there's sort of like, there's there's an age issue at both ends of the spectrum. There's there's potentially a size issue, physicality issue, pressing issue. You know, that there's a lot of boxes that, that need to be ticked. And, um, you know, just to sort of bring us back around, Bellingham alone, as good as he is, wouldn't wouldn't solve all those problems. He'd do a decent job at, at quite a few of them, but, you know, he, he can't do it on his own. So I'm I'm not saying it's better not to get him, but that there is a world where not getting him and getting three very good players arguably would be the better outcome. But, you know, we're, we're a long way from that position at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I have touched earlier in the season on how, even though he is just one player, he is a lot in one player, as in almost two players in one to an extent. Um, so I do think if we did get him in, he would do an awful lot to fixing what Liverpool have suffered from almost on his own. I don't think he'd solve it on his own, but he he would do a lot. Mm. Um, but and you, you mentioned the physicality issue there. Me and Mo did a, a transfers podcast. I think it might have been like around the summer, and that was kind of like a, a staple criteria for, for, for the targets I mentioned at the time. But I do th- still think it's a concern. But for me, I think what I just want to see more than anything else is just a really hungry, horrible midfield again. Um, players who can really cover ground for fun, energy, industry, regain the ball a lot, pressing monsters. That That's kind of what I want to see more than anything, really. Um, and that's why I like the idea of Casado. I like the idea of Ugarte. Mason Mount's got that naturally attached to his game. Declan Rice is a ball winner. A player like Gavi would would be perfect, but Casado, Ugarte, Gavi, they're all under six foot. Uh, Mason Mount as well, I think. Uh, so it's just going to be really interesting to see what Liverpool do because it's it's haunted Klopp all season, and he's really being made to pay for the oversight that he that he delivered last summer. So. You know, the club's had so much time here to prepare. We've got nothing to play for now for the rest of the season, really. Um, so it's it's going to be so interesting to see what Liverpool do in the summer and how they tackle this massive problem. Um, but because for me, it's it's very much still midfield. 
even though you've got all the smaller concerns and that. But it's going to be interesting to see what, what midfielders Liverpool get in, basically. I'm sure it won't be the last that we've heard, though, of, of Jude Bellingham. Um, hopefully it's not. But, uh, Bees, thanks for joining us, mate. No, pleasure, mate. Anytime. Always happy to uh, talk these things through, even if we don't always have all the answers. But um, certainly a lot of interesting questions, as we've said. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be linked to more targets by the time we, we next uh, join each other next week. But yeah, thanks for tuning in and uh, we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.